Welcome to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We are very happy to start out today welcoming Albert Eisenberg back to the show. He is a Young Voices contributor, of course. And Albert, I'm going to ask you to fill in a couple more blanks for us. Tell us about uh, what you do. Hey, uh, thanks for having me, Brian. So I am a political consultant and marketing strategist. I help campaigns and causes, usually on the right, sort of expand their voice share and reach audiences that they don't consider their traditional base. So there's a lot of people that do red meat messaging on the right. And on the left, there's not a lot of people that devote themselves to bridging the gap. And, you know, on the right, bringing uh, more diverse audiences in, bringing younger audiences in for the causes we care about. And we need to do that on the right because demographically we'll die if we don't. So here I here. Uh, write and I commentate and mostly I do work for my clients. OK, I'm looking at an article you wrote for RealClearPolitics.com, And I have to admit, this one really grabbed me. Albert, it's Harvard won't say if it supports diversity of thought. And, you know, I have understood, well, for a long, long time, you know, higher education, this is where we find true diversity. This is where people are encouraged to explore the world and expand their thinking and so forth. But in reality, it's becoming kind of a closed system in terms of how much diversity it's willing to entertain. What's the story behind Harvard and and, and the example that you're giving in this story of, of where diversity of thought seems to be off the table? Right. Well, I think you're exactly right with one slight adjustment, which is that it's already become that closed minded thought bubble. It's not becoming it became that way in the last several decades as the rise of um, the progressivism on campus, which really has decided to defeat ideas it doesn't like by suppressing them rather than disputing or debating them. Um, so in this particular instance, there's an enormous gap between what Harvard says on its website and in its all of its public facing statements and how it actually treated a specific professor who is a uh, luminary. Uh, his name is Roland Fryer. He came from basically the projects of Tampa or Daytona, Florida, and Rose had it. American dream story rose from poverty and, and gang background to um, go to college, get a PhD and become an eminent professor in his field of economics. And he did really interesting and consequential research on schools, on uh, police and law enforcement. And what he found uh, sort of upset the apple cart at Harvard because it wasn't politically correct. It followed a lot of data and statistics, but it didn't. The the findings he had did not agree with what the progressive uh, message is on you know race in schools, race and police involvement. And Harvard buried him essentially. So he's a tenured professor. It's almost impossible to fire somebody like that. But they use the pretense of decade old sexual harassment allegations most of which were dismissed by a neutral investigating committee, which recommended that they, uh, Fryer get some training in 2019. And instead, Harvard uh, shut down his research lab, which was exploring very important issues uh, that are crucial to our socioeconomic um, growth and, and solving the problems we face as a country. They shut down the research lab. They removed him from the classroom for two years. And several deans even recommended that they fire uh, Fryer, Rowan Fryer. And that had not been done at Harvard since the Civil War. So wow. the lengths that the academy and the bureaucracy at Harvard went to shut down Fryer um, are pretty astounding. And there's more to the story, which we can talk about. You mentioned in the story that uh, there's actually been a documentary made about Fryer. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, so there's a documentarian, Rob Montz. He's the best of the best as far as producing compelling commentary in a video format. He's the best of the best generally, but certainly unique on the right. He produces mini documentaries on YouTube um, and on Facebook and Twitter and interviews with really important people, Glenn Lowry, Heather McDonald, um, Lenore Skenazy, who does free-range parenting. Just very interesting, thought-provoking stuff. And he published this documentary that really exposed what had happened to Roland Fryer at Harvard over the last few years with this witch hunt trial and, and suppression of him. Um, also worth noting that Fryer is black and Harvard, you know, in 2020 with the George Floyd protests, you know, they support black voices. Everything they said was we support black voices, but it went, came to one specific black voice who was actually a tenured faculty member and among the most prominent at Harvard. They suppressed him. Now, when I asked Harvard, do you dispute any of the facts of the documentary? And do you support diversity of thought? What are your statements on that? Not only after two media requests, did they not comment? They actually wrote back and said they were going to refuse comment. So the story now is Harvard refuses to say if it supports diversity of thought. And that's big news in higher education. I guess. Now, Harvard is hardly, though, an isolated incident of this. I'm sure this is happening in other institutions of of higher learning. My question for you, Albert, is what's being done to counter this uh, this move of censorship? Yeah, you're right. Just this month, uh, Georgetown suppressed one of its um, incoming academics, Ilya Shapiro, who ended up quitting rather than having the sort of Damocles hanging over him with more investigations. And Princeton took the extraordinary step of firing uh, Joshua Katz, who's a tenured classics professor for his, th- you know, race politics tweets, basically. Um, what is being done? Well, what has to be done is that donors and students and parents need to raise their voice and make it heard at the offices that it's not just progressives who can make noise and suppress people, but conservatives and free thinking people need to save these institutions by exerting pressures, particularly from the donor side. Um, there are the Chicago University of Chicago principles, which a number of schools have signed on to regarding free inquiry. Uh, universities need to um, punish students who attack speakers, whether violently or by shutting down debate. That's just not in the in the um, canon of the Western University. That should not be done. And we need to found and fund other institutions of higher education, like the new University of Austin project, which is launching under with Barry Weiss, who's a very prominent free thinking writer, Glenn Lowry, Douglas Murray. Um, There's a number of very prominent academics and media types who are helping uh, launch this new type of free thinking university in Austin, Texas, which is a very exciting development. So I'm heartened by that. But a lot more needs to be done. Yeah. And you point out in your article, the, the goal here, even as uh, Professor Fryer was was allowed to come back to work, at least um, for for the time being, was um, he was he was supposed to work with this uneasiness, like always looking over his shoulder. There's always someone watching every move. That doesn't seem like a like a very productive environment for someone to really, you know, do research and, and teach and, you know, grow the field of knowledge. Yeah, and the obvious um, situation where, where Friar's now being supervised, his research is still shut down and he's being supervised by a dean that said he should be fired in this incredibly hostile situation is that don't move too far from your lane or you will face another inquiry and another witch hunt. And this is for a tenured professor. So imagine the academic chill that a student must feel, that a PhD student must feel who's thinking of entering the university field. I don't know why you would if you're not a progressive. 
So I have to ask, in your opinion, what is the end goal? This kind of, uh, you know, philosophical lockdown, if you will. What what are its proponents trying to accomplish? Are, are they just trying to get uniformity of thought or is there a particular narrative that they want to advance? Well, I think they're, they want a world formed in their image. They don't want democracy. They want what, you know, a small fringe of far left, you know, upper educated people in this country think. And their goal is to close the Overton window so that certain statements are beyond the pale in a university setting, which means that the future elites, the people that are running the country for the most part, are not going to get exposed to certain arguments such as, you know, life begins at conception or there are um, Differences in group outcomes that don't have to do with patriarchy and white supremacy or men and women are biologically different. And, you know, having them biological males and females compete on an athletic playing field is fundamentally unfair to women. Like you can't say certain things like that. And the goal is to not be able to say certain things like that. It seems like they're fighting an uphill battle against reality itself. And and I say this, I, I watched the Matt Walsh film uh, this last week of What is a Woman? And it was stunning to me because he talked to a lot of people in higher education. And, and there's there's a very deliberate uh, denial of reality. And I just have to wonder, is that sustainable? Can, can, can you no, keep I that mean, up reality, forever? Reality always catches up, but you can ruin a lot of things in the in the meantime. And I think the trust that Americans have in our institutions, which have been populated by people like this who are far left and have not been exposed to other arguments and don't believe there are good people who have other points of view, are populating our government, our media, our nonprofit space, our corporations. And whether they're completely out of touch with what working people in America are thinking and feeling, but they still have the levers of power and they can do a lot of damage and they are doing a lot of damage to our country. Well, and as you point out, Biden White House, as you point out in your article, I mean, we're talking Harvard, which has, you know, heritage and is is like that's that is the the front piece of American higher education and has been, you know, for hundreds of years. So scary stuff. I'm I'm glad, though, that people like you are reporting on this, that you're doing your part to help encourage, you know, keeping freedom of thought and freedom of speech, you know, alive and well, how can people access your work? Where can they find it? Great. Thanks for asking. Well, uh, you can go to bluestatered.us, bluestatered. That's my agency. Uh, So if you're interested in getting in touch and you have a campaign or a cause that needs a greater voice share, you can reach out to me and you can find me on Twitter at albydelphia, A-L-B-Y-D-E-L-P-H-I-A. All right, Albert Eisenberg, keep building those bridges. Appreciate your work. Thanks, Brian. Take care. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Jen Sidorova back to the program. She is a Young Voices contributor. And Jen, if you wouldn't mind, tell our listeners just a little bit more about who you are and what you do. Yes, definitely. I work for the Pension Integrity Project. Uh, we consult state governments on how to improve their pension plans and bring them back to solvency, bring them back on solvency track, making sure that they can afford paying all the benefits to the retirees that they've promised. And those retirees are usually public sector workers, teachers, firefighters, police officers. 
I have heard in recent years that a number of places, and I'm thinking primarily, it seems like uh, cities in California have really struggled to, to keep up with the obligations of their pension programs. And, and some of them uh, really are, are facing some huge financial challenges. I'm reading a story, though, that you wrote for Reason.org about Jacksonville, Florida, actually enacting public pension reform and apparently doing something right because it boosted the city's uh, credit rating. Tell us about the story behind this. Right. So back in 2017, what they did in Jacksonville was that they shut down uh, the existing defined benefit traditional pension plans for all the new hires, and they put all the new workers on a defined contribution plan, which is a 401k style plan. And they also paid down um, a significant chunk, chunk of their pension debt. So traditionally, uh, most public sector workers are in defined benefit plans. That means that um, this is a guaranteed retirement benefit for the employees, and um, it's funded by the employer. And there usually there usually is a formula involved, and it considers employee salary, age, and tenure, but it doesn't really consider how the market does. So it only considers those very specific inputs, and uh, the employees know almost exactly what how much are they going to get by the time they retire. So with defined contribution plans, and that's what the new hires have in Jacksonville right now, the defined contribution plans are solely dependent on how well um, the asset, um, how well the market returns. So it solely depends on the investment gains. So what that does for employer uh, is that it removes the risk of having to pay pensions if uh, they simply don't have enough. With 401k style plan, uh, there is a little bit more in the hands of the employee and um, it also gives them more flexibility because they can transfer their their retirement plan to a different employer if they choose to leave. So they have a lot more flexibility from both employee and employer and this is what they've chosen. And um, yeah, so this is basically the story and uh, all the money that's been freed up um, is going to public services like building roads, um, schools, and whatever uh, the Jacksonville, you know, whatever the Jacksonville people need at the moment. So I have to ask, how is the current market volatility affecting, you know, not just Jacksonville, but but other municipalities and states and their pension programs? You mentioned that um, oftentimes these pension programs depend on, you know, how the market's doing. Um, are, Are there a lot of places struggling like this right now? So it's important to take kind of a look uh, on this throughout the years. So right around the turn of the century in early 2000s, most of the pension plans were fully funded. So it was they were handed they had 100% of the money that they needed to pay out benefits. Now, by um, the mid of 2021, um, they were only 73% funded. And so the figure, that 100% funding figure declined over the years. And um, so what it means is they only have, by 2021, by the mid of 2021, they only had 73 cents per each dollar owed. Um, So there was definitely, uh, so the markets were not returning as well as they planned they would be returning because those pension plans were written years ago, like some of them 50, 60 years ago. So they couldn't have predicted what is going to be happening in the market. Right now, um, just on average, the return for similar portfolios as the pension plans have is about 6%. And even that's kind of 
depend it, that assumes a, a stability, and a lot of those plans assume seven percent or higher <clears throat> for their returns. And now that you mentioned last year, so last year technically they returned like twenty seven percent, but that was because of a wide variety. Of, factors including we just had more money in the economy now we are kind of feeling the inflation um but yeah at the moment last year they returned 27 which was kind of a high spike but now this year it's probably going to go down again and uh right so uh what pension plans should do is again they should just um slow down on the assumptions, they should lower the assumptions from 7% to more realistic 55 or 6%. And some of them are doing that. Some, um, For example, the state of New York did that recently. Okay. Now, does this, uh, does this mean that uh, municipalities are, are likewise having to, to uh, either freeze their, their workforces or contract their workforces in order to keep from, from digging themselves deeper into a financial hole? So there's it really depends on the municipality or on the state, and there are usually several ways of how they can um, navigate the situation. They don't necessarily have to go as drastic as going to a DC plan. Um, they don't necessarily have to close their DB plan. It all depends on little tweaks and changes that they can make to the system that they already have, to the funding model that they have. Uh, to the benefits that they have, or it really depends on the municipality. Um, so right now, the pensions are going to be due like 30 years from now, right? So at the moment, they're not going to feel anything this year necessarily, or maybe next year, uh, except for maybe like credit rating decreases, you know, like in Jacksonville's case, because they paid down the debt and because they put their pensions back on solvency track, they had an increase in rating. But you can also have a decrease in rating if your pension debt gets just way too high. So they can have some consequences of that at the moment, but uh, the bill will be due 30 years from now. Wow. Wow. I, are, are there any particular um, states or municipalities or pension systems that you have worked with through the Pension Integrity Project that stand out as a good example for how it should be done? I mean, besides uh, Jacksonville and some of their improvements? So some of the plans that we in the states that we worked with were Arizona, Colorado and Michigan. We helped with the pension reform there. And I also another example, though, that's kind of similar to uh Jacksonville is Alaska. We haven't worked on Alaska on their pension reform um, because it happened in 2006. It happened back in the day. And um, it, they also switched from defined benefit to defined contribution. And the worry there was and is right now that if we don't get those guaranteed benefits to public service workers, we're not going to get the workers, right? We're not going re- to retain them. And so I recently wrote a paper and a commentary that looked at what happened in Alaska in the 15 years after they switched from guaranteed uh, benefits to 401k style benefits. And I see that actually the 401k style employees uh, are staying longer. So not only we don't see a negative consequence of a reform, we actually see that maybe uh, the new younger workers prefer defined contribution for 1K style uh, benefit because it's more transferable, it's more flexible, and um, there is sort of a guarantee, as, you know, as long as they um, 
as long as there is enough money there, they always they can take it away with them all the time. Whereas with defined benefit plan, you always kind of do run a little bit of a risk. What happens if it's not funded? It, we have just under a minute left here, but I, I have to ask, are there any uh, cities that have, have fumbled this so badly that they've actually had to uh, default on pension plans or otherwise, uh, you know, find themselves in, in a really tough place? I think Detroit and Puerto Rico would be my examples of that, specifically Detroit, that actually had to default. One of the reasons was the pensions and Puerto Rico, very similar situation. Um and right now, New York City, and I am from New York State, and um, in New York City is in a situation when they do have a significant issue with benefits, pension benefits, and health, and retirement health benefits. And we, it's, I'm curious to see what's going to happen there. Okay. Again, we are talking with Jen Sidorova. She is a policy analyst with the Reason Foundation's Pension Integrity Project. Where can people follow you on social media? They can follow me on Twitter, on YouTube, and on Facebook and Instagram. It's all the same hashtag, Jen underscore Sidorova. And we are back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Brian Albrecht to the program. He is a Young Voices contributor. And Brian, I was looking at your uh, your bio here on National Review, and you're telling me there's there are a few annotations we need to add here <laughs> to make sure it's up to date. Tell us about who you are and what you do. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, Brian. Uh, my name is Brian Albrecht. I'm an economist by training. I have a PhD from the University of Minnesota. Until recently, I was a professor at Kansas State, which is in Georgia. But recently, now I started up with the International Center for Law and Economics, where I'm their chief economist, helping uh, bring economics to policy discussions. Okay, and specifically, you and I are going to be talking about antitrust. And I, I love the title here, Antitrust is Easy, when you think you know all the answers. Uh, for for the sake of those who may not uh, understand what all antitrust encompasses, can we start with kind of a working definition of what that is? Yeah, so antitrust is it's a broad term that covers lots of different policies. But basically, starting at the end of the 19th century, the United States and some other economies decided that they were going to use policies to kind of break up big businesses. They were worried about monopolization. You know, we all know the stories of, of you know, big oil and, and the railroads and things like that. And so policy was going to step in. The federal government was going to step in and ensure that there was free entry, that no company kind of took control of an economy. Because the thinking is that, you know, once an economy is so concentrated, once there's a big company that kind of controls everything, that's effectively like government control. And so we need to prevent that. Okay. I, I'm i kind of a small government guy, so even antitrust sounds good, but at the same time, I'd, I'd still be suspicious. But you make the case in your article that... Uh, even in the cases where antitrust could do something positive, there's been kind of a diversion from its original intent, and now it's actually kind of being used as, as punishment or it's been weaponized. Talk to me about how that's taken place. Well, that's a really good point that there is a divide on the right, and there has been for a long time in the use of antitrust. Some some people think that it's it's just government stepping in. Other people think that it's it's really necessary to ensure a functioning economy. That if effectively, once you become so powerful, you need you know you are like a state in some sense, and and so to to keep the economy functioning, 
we need to break up these sort of companies. So it's not really, you know, it, it's an interesting issue because it doesn't just fall into left-right divides. I mean, people on the right historically have, have came down on both sides of the issue. People on the left have, have generally been more in favor of stronger enforcement and more against kind of these big companies. So that's been there in the debate as, as far back as I uh, I'm aware of. I'm an economist, not a historian or the legal scholar by training, but really since the modern antitrust era, which starts in the 50s, there's been a divide on the right of, of how to think about it. And more recently, let's say within the last 10 years, there's really a growing fever, it's particularly around the issues of big tech, but there's a growing impetus for, for trying to break up these companies or not necessarily break up, that's an extreme uh, example, but to somehow limit them or constrain them in a way. Rain them that, in. That Rain them in. Yeah, rain in big tech is a, a headline you'll see all the time. No, that's... That makes sense. And and I want to can I just throw a couple of curveballs at you? I just want to get your reaction to this. Uh, it seems like many of the companies that grow to where they, they have almost a government like influence or uh, they, they become like a little republic of sorts. Uh, they in my opinion, it seems a lot of them get there by partnering with government at some level. I, I wonder if they could if they could truly be as powerful or as influential as they are if they didn't get in bed with government in the first place. So I'm I'm curious that, if you have any thoughts on is there anything to that? I think that's definitely true. I mean, once you get to a certain size, just the nature of the government has its fingers in so many things, you're going to get involved with the government. And sometimes that will be, you know, you'll, you'll come to blows with them, like the DOJ is, is suing Apple. It happens all the time. But sometimes you're being friendly with them. The the classic, or I mean, the, the popular example right now is as Google or Facebook have shared data with different government agencies. Yeah. And so it's kind of hard to imagine, given how big the government is, how much it's involved in everything, how you could possibly be a multi-trillion dollar company and not somehow at least curry some favor with the government. So I think, I think there's reason to be uh, suspicious uh, anytime we see this kind of private-public coordination. That being said, it doesn't mean that, oh, therefore, anything that these companies do, they're effectively the government. I think they're, I think it's still important to separate out that Google is not the U.S. government. Facebook is not, you know, the U.S. government. They have a different role. They have competition that's affecting them in fundamentally different ways. And and just to further follow up on that, sometimes, though, they, they enjoy the benefit of regulatory barriers to, you know, other competitors. I've, I mean, how many other, you know, social media companies have tried to start up and found, wow, this is hard because, you know, there are regulations in place that favor those that are already uh, in place. And I, I'm not thinking of any, you know, Google or, or Facebook or anybody in particular, but it seems like that's that's something that has to be dealt with as well. This is a fundamental problem in not just antitrust, but regulation in general, that the moment the government is powerful enough to regulate, let's say, take a particular industry, as soon as they can regulate it, you know, who has the incentive to, to curry the, the regulation in their favor? The companies that are already there. And so this goes back to work in the 70s, a regulatory capture, big companies get regulation that helps them. If you and I are going to start up an Etsy shop, we have no means to you know, lobby Congress for things that will help us. The people who can do the most lobbying are the big tech companies. Yep. Absolutely. And you see this in things that don't seem like antitrust and don't seem like the same sort of regulation, like 
everyone knows these annoying pop-ups of cookies when you go on a website, right? That's a regulation that comes out of Europe. A recent paper out of a big organization called the National Bureau of Economic Research found that that just destroyed many, many small apps. So if you regulate applications, okay, that's not going to affect Apple. That's not going to affect Google. They have a trillion lawyers, you know, who is that going to affect? People who are trying to start up and, you know, that don't have the lawyers on, on deck, can't jump through all the barriers. Absolutely, regulation is always going to favor big companies. Where does the hubris within the uh, the antitrust agencies tend to originate? That's a really good question. I mean, by its nature, antitrust has some hubris because basically what you're doing is you are stepping in and saying yes company you're doing x we think x is wrong and it's not ever going to be in the same sort of way that you know lying or 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 fraud are legal antitrust by its by the nature of it is is going to be something where the government steps in and says oh you've you've done too much X post, you, you, you thought you had to collect all this data on users. That gave you a monopoly position. Therefore, we're going to step in and say you can't do that anymore. Or to take a more recent particular example, uh, Apple, for a long time, charged 30% fee on every App Store transaction. So if you, you, know, you gave money to your favorite app, Apple took a 30% cut. Antitrust is going to step in and say that's monopoly price. And so they're going to step in and, and, and say that they have a better price for this market in, in the particular case of, of the Apple uh, 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 App Store problem. So I, th- I think that there's hubris just in the nature of you're regulating, you're stepping in and saying what can be optimal. Okay, I think there's a new level of hubris in the, the more recent antitrust examples around regulating big tech because it's an industry where the regulators really – aren't up to date on what's going on and and but they're kind of scared of, of what's happening from these companies so we've got just under a couple of minutes left and i just i have to ask you about this um elon musk and twitter i know that uh, some have suggested well there may be some antitrust uh, um action taking place there because uh, it looks like there, there's a question as to how much of uh twitter's users are actually bots and how many how many aren't do you have any thoughts on that situation is antitrust likely to play a role in whether or not that deal goes through uh it's definitely something that the the Musk and Twitter, you know, before Musk, are, are going to be thinking about. I mean, FTC is definitely going to be looking into it, whether it's viable. I don't see how they have a case. Musk is not in this environment at all, really, in social media. If Zuckerberg wanted to buy Twitter, that would be different. But Musk is in, is in cars, is in space. Like, that's a different industry. So I don't see where the case comes from. Okay. I appreciate your take on that. I just I know that's on a lot of people's minds and and it's uh, a big well, news right now for sure. Inquiring minds like mine want to know as well. Tell us uh, where people can follow your work. I know you're you're published in a number of different publications. Yeah, the best way to follow me is on Twitter at Brian C is in Charlie Albrecht. So at Brian Charlie Albrecht, and then. I have a Substack that I publish every week that's on basic economics, talking about things like antitrust, which is pricetheory.substack.com. Pricetheory.substack.com. Okay. I will have a link to uh, to your recent article in National Review. That will be in the show notes, and we'll encourage our listeners to uh, connect with you. And uh, I'm going to be keeping an eye on you here because uh, as little as I understand about antitrust, I want to know more because I, I can see that there's, there's a bit of a showdown shaping up, it appears. 
It's a huge area right now, really an exciting time to get into the policy sphere. All right, Brian Albrecht, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Brian. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices, and we're happy to welcome back to the show David McGarry. He is a Young Voices contributor and a hailing from sunny Los Angeles. It is sunny today, right, David? A little bit too sunny for my taste. Okay. <laughs> tell us tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do for those meeting you for the first time. So, like you said, I come from uh, L.A., and I've been writing a lot about privacy and tech issues because uh, both of those fields are um, are areas that the average citizen doesn't seem to be so concerned about, neither do either of the uh, major political parties. So I think that they're issues that are very important to the future of the country. And I hope more people, as a result of my writing and other people who are contributing to the conversation, will uh, more people will start paying attention. I think we take a lot for granted, right? There's, there's a lot that's going on behind the scenes. Oh, as long as I can get online and you know, access what I want to access. I'm I'm good. Now, you point out in your article, Congress is always eager to get in there and I'm going to say make a difference. I'm trying to be generous or I'm trying to be magnanimous to them. But often they don't understand the Internet and how it works. Tell me about some of the problems that arise from that misunderstanding or lack of, of knowledge. I think I think you actually just hit the nail right on the head when you said we take a lot for granted. Um, because the same problems that apply to most people also apply to Congress, which is we have computers, we have iPads, we have cell phones, but few of us could actually explain how the devices or um, the Internet actually work, uh, which is all well and good when all you need is to uh, make a phone call or, or scroll through Facebook. But when you're trying to make regulations that will uh, shape the Internet landscape and really shape the cultural landscape uh, for the next few decades, that, that ignorance becomes a real problem. So the the bills that I write about in my uh, Real Clear Policy piece um, have slightly different focuses. They're called the Shop Safe Act and the Inform Act, um, and they're both they're both pieces of legislation that, again, for various reasons, uh, require third party sellers on online marketplaces like Amazon or eBay to hand over a whole bunch of information and to verify that information with, uh, with government, uh, documents, oftentimes IDs. And when I say handover, I mean, to online marketplaces like Amazon or eBay, just as a requirement of selling, uh, selling goods and for ShopSafe actually, because the definitions are so poorly written and I would say ignorantly written, uh, the definition of online marketplaces applies to, any uh, platform on which you could even arrange a sale. So as I point out in my article, that could mean you are in uh, Facebook Messenger, you're in some chat room when you're, playing a, when you're playing a game on your cell phone trying to sell a used bike. You're trying to sell used uh, baseball cards, anything like that. Um, and because of the poor wording of these bills, most, um, most services that allow for communications would be required to require you to give them your information and distribute uh, your personal your personal details all over 
all over the internet, far and wide. Wow. Now, please understand, I'm old enough that I'm cynical when when Congress does something. Anything that they name and act, I have this habit of trying to look at it through the Orwellian lens and feel, okay, what's the exact opposite of of what the act says versus what it's likely going to do? So when it says the Shop Safe Act, I'm thinking, hmm, is it really going to make it safer to shop? Or, as you point out, is it going to put, you know critical uh, private information in in a lot of people's hands that maybe I don't want it. Likewise, the Inform Act, you know, I have to wonder, is there is there an Orwellian twist on, on how that applies as well? What was the genesis for these acts, or what was the, the stated need for why these needed to be put forth? So, like I said, the, the two bills have slightly different purposes. ShopSafe is uh, designed to crack down on uh, trademark infringement on these third-party online uh, online sellers uh, uh, on online marketplaces like eBay and Amazon, and a lot of a lot of what's behind that is trademark rights holders who who understandably, but in probably most of our opinions, they take it a little too far. But but these people don't don't want uh, their their products necessarily being um, being, or I should say, uh, they don't want their they don't want their products being either faked or maybe even sometimes if you're reselling legitimate products, they might have issues with that. And lawyers who work in the space have actually have been on this for quite a while. Um, and also in the, in the copyright, in the copyright area, which is again, the rights holders for legitimate reasons, however far they may take it because it's in their personal interest, um, really have an incentive to aggressively, uh, go after whoever they can to make sure that people are buying their products directly from them. And I guess the reason I ask that is because sometimes I wonder, is is it the actual, you know, is it actually, a, you know, like a grassroots effort of people saying, look, we really need this protection? Or is it is it some other, you know, special interest that's like, hey, this would be a good idea? Or for that matter, even Congress just trying to stay busy? Well, like most things, I think there's multiple explanations. So there is the special interest, of course. Um, but also both Republicans and Democrats are just in a mood to regulate big tech right now. Um Democrats come at it from a um, from a long history of being antitrust and anti big business it, from a, from a reflexive basis um, rather than any considered uh, any considered policy um, <clears throat> or any considered specific uh, a specific policy um, and Republicans right now because of uh, perceived cultural wokeness which I believe I, I'll give that there is a lot of merit to their to some of their complaints, but because of those uh, complaints, Republicans are very apt to just forget everything they ever learned about economics. You know, they forget that they ever read Tom Sowell, and now here we are, and they're trying to interfere in markets. Um, and when it comes to uh, social social media and uh, some big uh, big tech regulations surrounding Section two thirty, they're also discarding the First Amendment as well. So they're really dropping their principles because of some. Maybe you should. We could say uh, a well-founded, at least in the in in the complaint side of things. But the solutions are totally off. And as far as the Inform Act, you point out that uh, it's the idea that uh, those who sell online or those who are um, who close at least two hundred sales and gross more than five thousand dollars a year on a single online marketplace have to provide you know information like identity, banking information, tax information, working phone number, email address. Tell me about the danger of that information being scattered across the internet. 
Well, going back to your your point, your Orwellian point is that Inform actually is exact the the name of the act is exactly what it does, but it does it far too much, and it it forces people to um, put out personal details um, uh, t- in a in a variety of in a in, or to a variety of marketplaces if they want to make a living, and five thousand dollars is not a lot of money. That is no. that is a that is a side stream of income that help that can help a lot of people who are trying to just trying to pay rent um, actually be able to pay rent and buy groceries. And I say this as someone who uh, in high school, one of my first jobs was listing items for a widow who was running an eBay business um, as part of her income. Um, so there's there's a couple different issues here. Number one, there's the data security issue, which is that cybersecurity is incredibly difficult. Um, and the more the more places the more uh the more companies that have your sensitive information the more opportunities there are for nefarious actors both just uh, private hacker, ha- hackers and foreign government agents to break into to break into uh to these these uh these treasure troves of data and use it for how for whatever purposes you know they're they're up to um so that's that's the data security side. The other the other side of this is that you may not want people to be able to track you down. You may just want to be a person who makes five ten thousand dollars a year selling things you find at pawn shops, or maybe you just have some some old things in your garage. Maybe your your deceased spouse has a collection, like the lady I worked I worked for. Her spouse had a had a bunch of books that she was selling. So maybe. You're just selling a bunch of old books that have that have higher values, and you're trying to supplement your income um, on a on a on a side hustle. And the fact that you have to allow uh, you would have to allow anyone on the internet to 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 look at your uh, to look at your personal information, and from that be able to either track you down in the digital or the physical world, that's a, that's a real problem for a whole bunch of various personal reasons, completely leaving aside the fact that um, as, as libertarian leaning types and lovers of personal freedom, we should just want, we should want people to be able to be private if they want to be private and their desire for that privacy is reason enough for them to have it. We've got about 30 seconds here, but I have to ask you, how can we help Congress become better informed before it dives into legislation? How, how can we help them better understand how the internet works? Well, I think people need to start making, uh, start, need to start making uh, tech a higher priority in the way that they vote. Um, obviously, you can call, email your Congress people and senators, um, but also do this at the state level because there's a whole bunch of, there's a whole bunch of very bad, um, there's a whole bunch of very bad proposed regulations around these types of issues as well as social media that are being thrown around in state legislatures and yeah get involved make it a priority for yourselves okay we're talking with david mcgarry he is a young voices contributor where can people follow you on social media you can find me on twitter at david b mcgarry also in addition you can find my young voices profile on the young voices website there's a lot more coming as well. Um.